Mark chapter 10 is where we are today, continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. And we are picking up with Jesus on his journey from the Mount of Transfiguration to Mount Calvary. Mark chapter 10, he is headed toward Jerusalem. And this is what transpires, beginning in verse 17 of Mark chapter 10. Mark says, he was setting out on a journey, again, stayed at maybe Peter's house, and they get up the next morning and they continue their climb upward to Jerusalem. So he was setting out on a journey and a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not fraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But at these words, he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Have you ever wondered what it would have been like to have sat in a worship service of the primitive church? For instance, if we could just time travel and drop in on the church at Ephesus or Philippi, or Colossae, or somewhere like that, and just experience their worship service, what would that have been like? And have you ever wondered how closely does what we do today in our worship services, in our churches, resemble that, if any at all? I've often thought, what would the Apostle Paul say if he were to suddenly appear in one of our worship services on any given Sunday morning, would he be pleased or would he scratch his head and say, man, I, I don't know what y'all are doing. This is totally foreign to how we used to do it back in the primitive spirit-filled church. Uh, how would that be? But I also wonder sometimes, what is the message that we proclaim in relation to the message that was proclaimed by Jesus and the apostles. Is there resemblance? Have we deviated and don't even know it? Well, this passage of Scripture is one of those places in the New Testament where our gospel, our modern gospel that we tend to proclaim, stands in contradistinction to the gospel that the master and the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ himself, proclaimed. Also, in our methodology, how we do evangelism, we see a great difference. Matter of fact, the way we do evangelism is probably totally opposite of how Jesus did evangelism and what he modeled here in this text. I mean, this guy that comes up to him is a modern man. He came up in such a fashion that the way this man came to Jesus in Jesus' day 
could be mimicked or could be done or could be seen in any of our contemporary churches today. I mean, what he did was modern. But make no mistake about it, what Jesus did is far from modern. What Jesus did doesn't resemble our response. What Jesus proclaimed does not resemble what we proclaim. There's a great difference here. So I want to speak to you today since this man and and his approach to Jesus is so modern. I want to speak to you on the subject of what would Jesus say to a man from Monophay. And you got to give me points for the rhyme, don't you? I mean, come on. (laughs) I try hard here. At least crack a smile and say, well, that's pretty, pretty, pretty creative, preacher. What would Jesus say to a man from Monophay? And it gets at the question that I've been trying to put before us. Are we doing it differently? I think we are. Could that be some of the reason that the church today seems to be, the modern church seems to be so impotent? Where is the power of the gospel? And could it be that we've kind of tweaked it a little bit, we've kind of watered it down, and hence we've lost some of its explosive power? So what would Jesus say? And what did Jesus say to this man who was so modern and so contemporary that he could have been one of us, a man from Bonifay? Let's check it out. What would he say? Number one, in light of this man's spiritual request. I mean, after all, we got to give this man kudos, don't we? Because up until now, folk who have been coming to Jesus and falling down before him, they've been begging on behalf of some physical type of need. Somebody's been sick. Somebody's been dead. Somebody's died. Somebody's got a demon wanting Jesus to do something physical for them. Now look, is that not modern or is that not modern? Hey, other than the prayer meeting that we had Wednesday night, most prayer meetings you go to are totally consumed with praying for sick people. Now hear me, I'm not opposed to praying for sick people. If I get the COVID, would somebody please in Jesus' name pray for me? <laughs> I'll tell you what, just go ahead and pray for me now that I don't get it and you'll just, we'll avert that whole situation. Hear what I'm saying? But look, we spend, as somebody said, more time praying to keep saved people out of heaven than we do to pray lost people into heaven because we pray for so much physical stuff. And I tell you, we came here Wednesday night and we had a prayer time and on the way home it hit me like a ton of bricks. We didn't pray for the first physical thing. I mean, we didn't pray for anybody's ingrown toenail. We didn't pray for anybody's left hip surgery. We didn't pray for it. Son, we came together, and, and, and for some reason or another, we prayed for spiritual things. And here this guy is doing just that. He didn't come up and say, look, I got this problem. I got this little limp catching my get along. Would you touch me and make me better? Walk this way, you know, as they used to say. No, he didn't. He came up and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you got to give him credit. He may be a little bit farther down the road than we are in that regard. In that regard, But now here we go. He comes up to Jesus with a spiritual request. And notice how he came. And again, I say, I think he kind of puts us to shame. This man came, number one, hurriedly to Jesus. Notice what the scripture says. He was setting out on a journey. 
a man reluctantly came up to him after the 12th verse of Just As I Am was being sung at the invitation. <laughs> That's not what the scripture says, is it? This man came in a hurry. What's the scripture say? He ran up to Jesus. So he came in a hurry. Lord, grant the day when we respond to Jesus the way this lost man responded to Jesus. Where we don't sit and justify and think, well, I know you're speaking to me, but I'm not really prepared to do it. Let me think about it. Let me pray about it. Maybe next week, Lord, and procrastinate and put it off a little bit more. No, sir, this guy was ready to do business, and he ran up to Jesus. He came in a hurry. I love it when that takes place. I love it when God gets a hold of somebody and draws them, and they feel like if they put it off any longer, their heart's going to explode in their chest. You ever been there where you can't but do what he says to do, and you got to do it right now no matter what anybody thinks or anybody says? We got to do it. We got to get this on. I got to have some relief here. And that's what this guy did. He came hurriedly. But notice what else he did. He came humbly. He came up to Jesus, and he didn't have a cocky attitude. He came up to him, the Bible says, and he knelt. So he came and he put himself prostrate before the master. Man, isn't that how you respond to the one who's king of kings and lord of lords? Man, I tell you, when you're in his presence, you don't come and put your thumbs under your lapel and stick your chest out and say, look at me. God, aren't you glad, like, uh, who's the guy, the crazy guy that wants to run for president that said the other day at Joel Osteen's church that God's lucky to have somebody like him speaking for him? Oh, what's his name? What's his name? You, who is it? Kanye West. There you go. Son, you don't do that when you're in the presence of God. Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So this guy comes up and he prostrates himself. But notice something else. While I'm on this P-roll, let me go with it. He came up and he prostrated himself. Number two, he came publicly. I mean, when God gets a hold of you, you don't care who's watching, do you? You don't care who's seeing you. You don't care what anybody else is going to think. And can I say this? If you're worried about what anybody's thinking, you're not yet where you need to be in relation to God. Son, when you get in the presence of God and He begins to draw you and work in you, if you still care what somebody else is thinking, you're not there yet. You're not there yet. This guy came publicly. He was desperate. He didn't care what anybody else thought. He was going to take hold of Jesus. So here he comes. He You know, maybe his response isn't so modern after all, is it? I mean, we have hundreds of excuses. This guy came in a hurry. This guy came humbly. Number next, this guy came honestly. I mean, he came up with an honest question. And he came up with a sincere question. Lord, what must I do to inherit? Matthew's version says, what must I do to obtain eternal life? So he had an honest question. But can I say this to you? You can be as honest if you want as you want to be. You can be as sincere as you want to be and still go to hell. And, I, you know, I hear folks say this all the time. I hear folks say, now, if you'll just bow your head and close your eyes, and if you'll pray this prayer, and you really mean it now, you really mean it. If you'll do this and you're sincere, no, has nothing to do with that at all. This guy had an honest question. He was sincere. 
you still missed it. Check out what else the Bible says about this guy. The Bible says that he came in a hurry. He came humbly. He asked honestly. And look, he wanted to go to heaven. Isn't that what the question is? What must I do to inherit? You see, that phraseology, he's talking about after he died. I want to go to heaven. Now let's get back on the modern track. Because this is exactly what folk are wanting today. They're wanting to go to heaven when they die, but they're not wanting to follow Jesus three steps down the road while they're here. See what I'm saying? And look, here's one of the deviations in our modern gospel as opposed to the gospel that Jesus proclaimed and the kerygma of the apostles. Watch me. Read your New Testament. I mean, put it under a microscope. Pull out your magnifying glass. Not one time in the early apostolic preaching was heaven ever held out as the motivation for repentance. They never asked this question. Hey, do you know for sure that you're born again and that you'll go to heaven when you die? That's our number one question today in evangelism. Going to heaven when you die. Search the scriptures. Heaven was never held out as the motivation for faith and repentance. Can I say this to you? Salvation is not a place. It's not. And we've equated it to that. Salvation to us is equal to going to heaven when you die. Hear me, everybody wants to go to heaven, don't they? Nobody hardly wants to follow Jesus. Watch me. In the New Testament, salvation is not a place, i.e. heaven. Salvation is not a plan. How many times do you hear us talk about a plan of salvation? It's not a place. It's not a plan. Listen to me. Salvation is a person. And his name is Jesus Christ. And that's what salvation is. It's being restored into a personal relationship with a person. And that person is the Lord of glory, the creation of everything. He's the God who spoke it all into existence from whom we were estranged by sin. And salvation puts us back in a face-to-face -face relationship with a person. And you don't wait till you die to get that. You get it as soon as you're born again. Huh? I'm telling you, our gospel is just a little bit different from what Jesus proclaimed. Now check this out. Look at this modern guy again. He came in a hurry. He came humbly. He came honestly. And he came wanting to go to heaven. Finally. Now, you know, there's several more. I mean, I could put some more H words in there. <laughs> Let me give you one more before I get this last one. I think we can say he came hungrily. He was hungry, was he not? Here's what I like about Matthew's account. Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 19, verse number 20, he comes to Jesus and said, all of these things I've done, but what do I lack? What do I still lack? Look, he had a gnawing emptiness in his life. In the knower of his knower, in his soul, he knew that there's got to be more to life than this. This can't be all there is. This can't be the reason that I am here. There's got to be more. And he was hungry for that. Man, I love it when folk get hungry. Hey, the number one characteristic of a disciple ought to be hunger. And isn't that what Jesus said? 
Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be ignored and be sent home starving. No, Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be what? Filled. They shall be filled. So this guy came and he was hungry. Now that was free. It's not even on your paper right there. You may want to write it in. Here's the final H word. Even though he had everything. What is everything? Between Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, here's what we know about this guy. Here's what he had. He was young. (laughs) Son, wouldn't I like to reverse the clock a little bit and go back? Uh, Some days not so much. Other days, yeah. I mean, I'd like to have my hair back of what I used to have, things of that nature. I'd like to have my energy back, my vitality. I'd like to even have the size of my bladder back. <laughs> I mean, if y'all don't look out, I'm going to have to call a bathroom break here in a minute and run out there. You know what I'm saying? When you get to be old, that's just the way it is, right? I used When I was a young preacher, I just couldn't imagine... Why don't all you guys sit down while I'm preaching? Some old guys constantly popping up, going to the bathroom. Now I'm like, y'all wait a minute, I'll be right back. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Look, I told y'all, come on, y'all take this too seriously sometimes. <laughs> he had everything, Jerry. He was young. Son, youth is, youth is something to, hey, listen to young people. Y'all don't waste your youth. That is a valuable gift of God. Don't waste it. I think there's indication here that this guy may have wasted some of his youth. I'm going to show you in just a minute. But look, he was young. He was rich. The Bible says he owned much property. Now look, that's, our, that's the goal of most of, our li- most of our lives, is it not? To be rich, to have stuff. But get this, this guy was rich and he still was hungry. There was something lacking. So even though this guy had everything, not only was he rich, but he was religious. He was probably the ruler in a synagogue. So here he was, he had youth, he had wealth, and he had religion. And he was still not happy. Hey, is that you? You know one of the things that challenges me sometimes is I just have to ask myself, hey, Rick, are you happy? Even more than that, Rick, are you joyful? And I'll never forget, Dane and I talked about it not the, just not long ago the other day. I, I remember a time in my life when I was a pastor, and I took one of my kids to school, and I sat on a bench, and I watched lost people who have no inclination of who God is walking by, and they were just as happy as they could be, having a good time. And here I was, a pastor, so burdened down that I was not enjoying life. Didn't feel like I could put one foot in front of the other. And I said, Rick, something wrong. Something wrong when you can know the Lord of life and these lost people out here enjoying life more than you are. Something's wrong. Is that an indication that maybe we've just fallen off into the routine of religion rather than enjoying the refreshment of a relationship with the living God. Warning sign. Check out this now. What would Jesus say to a man from Boniface? Well, in light of this man's spiritual request, and you see how this man came. But look, let's stop it on pause right here. Let's hit the pause button. Here we are today at Grace Church. 
we preach a message. You are the decision time counselor sitting right up here waiting for folks to respond. You come up here thinking it's going to be like every other Sunday, ain't nobody going to respond. And all of a sudden while you're sitting there, somebody comes up and hits you like a linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers and nearly takes you down. And they come in a hurry. And they fall on you and say, Sir, ma'am, what must I do to be saved? What you going to say? And is it going to be different from what Jesus said? I venture to say what we would, how we would respond would be greatly different. Here's how it is. I mean, just look through this text. Here's, when, here's the way we speak of salvation. When we speak of being saved, we talk about how easy it is to be saved. Jesus Christ talked about how hard it was to be saved. Check out these verses that follow that we'll get into next week. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Little children, how hard it is to be saved. But yet, the modern gospel talks about how easy it is. Huh? Are those opposites? Or is it just me? Am I reading this wrong? So, stop it on pause. What would we say to that guy? We'd say, oh, son, it's easy. Notice. We talk about starting the journey. Jesus talks about staying on the journey. Does he not? I mean, all of our interest today is upon, you just bow your head and pray this prayer. It doesn't matter if you follow Jesus. It doesn't even matter if you follow him in the very first step of believer's baptism. The only thing that matters is you bow your head, you close your eyes, and with sincerity you ask Jesus to come into your heart, and you'll go to heaven when you die. Son, that's not the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, is it? Or am I just making all of this up? We talk about how easy it is. He talked about how hard it was. We talk about starting. He talked about staying. We talk about how salvation is absolutely free. It's a free gift. Jesus said, it'll cost you everything you've got. He said, go and sell everything you've got. Give it to the poor. Come follow me. Oh yeah, salvation is a free gift, but it will cost you everything that you have. So what would we say to this guy when he comes up? We'd probably say, so glad you came today. Would you just bow your heads and repeat after me this prayer? God, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I ask you to forgive me. Would you come into my heart and save me? And if they'll pray that prayer right after you pray that prayer, just like you tell them to pray it, we'll stand them up here and say, now church, today here's old Johnny. He's from Boniface. He came today in a hurry because God was asking him. And he asked an honest question. He asked God, what must I do to be saved? And we told him exactly what the scripture said. And now on the authority of God's word, he is a child of God. He's going to heaven when he dies. Isn't that what we would do? Am I right or am I wrong? Is that what Jesus did? It's far from what Jesus did. So now let's pick up, let's take it back on pause and hit the play button again. Okay, here we go. What would Jesus say to a man from Boniface? In light of the man's spiritual decision, Jesus gave a shocking response. 
a shocking response. Where's my whiteboard? Oh, I need my whiteboard so bad, but that's all right. I'll get by without it. Here's what Jesus did. Jesus wanted this man to arrive at his own conclusions. Notice, he came up to Jesus and asked a question. Jesus didn't give him an answer. Jesus asked him another question. And he kept on asking him questions. You know why Jesus does that? Jesus doesn't give pat, easy answers. He loves you too much for that. He wants you to arrive at your own conclusions. So here's what he was doing. He was leading that guy to arrive at his own conclusions. Now, somebody has said, here's one of our major problems today. Our theology is not our own. Because we haven't arrived at that conclusion in the school of hard knocks with Jesus. We're simply just picking up what we have heard parroted from previous generations. And I believe what I believe because that's what daddy believed. And that's what mama believed. And that's what I've always heard. Can I ask you a question? Is your theology yours? Have you arrived at some hard, fast conclusions? Because that's what Jesus did with this guy. So notice what he did. Here are the conclusions that he wanted this guy to arrive at. Conclusion number one. He wanted him to arrive at the conclusion that Jesus is God. Now how, do you, how did he do that? Check out what he said real, real closely here. Look at, look at what Jesus said. He came up and said, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Now remember, Jesus is talking to a guy here who's educated. He's talking to a guy who is the ruler of the synagogue. He's talking to a man who is acquainted with law and logic and rhetoric. So Jesus spoke to this guy on his level where he should have been able to understand. Two things going on here. Number one, I think Jesus is kind of chiding him for just flippantly throwing around the term good. And he's right. Man, we have so lowered the standard for good until some folks say I'm good. That's lowering the bar a good bit. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> a good bit. We commonly talk about somebody, he's just a good old boy. No, he's not. He's a sinner. That's what he is. The standard for goodness is one. You know who's good? God. God is good. And look, I understand it. I, I do that. I talk about folk being good. But maybe we need to come up with another word rather than good and let God be good and only God be good. Now, notice this. Here's where Jesus talks to him in his own language because here's what he does. Jesus sets up this proposition in the form of a logical syllogism. Now, stay with me. Let me get nerdy on you for a minute because Jesus got nerdy with this guy. You know what a logical syllogism is? Have you ever studied logic and philosophy? I've got to have my blackboard. Is my blackboard handy? Is my whiteboard handy? Bring, bring it here. Let me, let me show you this. This is, this, is, this is just too good for me not to write it down. For all of posterity's sake, just hurry up here with it, and I'll try to delay until, uh, until y'all get here. Somebody asked somebody ask, um, ask W.A. Crystal one time, said, Pastor, I notice when you preach you don't have notes. Do you ever lose your place and forget what you're supposed to be saying next? He said, oh, yeah, all the time. I said, well, what do you do? You don't have notes. He said, just keep talking. It'll come back to you. 
So I'm just kind of keeping talking right now. Oh, look at here, and I talk just long enough. Is there a uh, is there a magic stick thing that we use to write with them things on that board somewhere? You got one in your hand? All right. Man, don't you love impromptu stuff? That's the way we are here at Grace. We fly by the seat of our pants. No forethought put into anything. Huh? All right, logical syllogism. Here's what Jesus did. Can everybody see my board? Or am I too close? Here we go. Notice, notice what he does. He says this. He says, only God is good. There's the first statement that Jesus makes. This guy came up to him and said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God's good. Decision. This guy's got a decision to make. He can either retract his statement and rephrase it in order that it would be acceptable to Jesus, or he could let it stand. Which one of those did he do? He let it stand. You see, I think there's a long pause that took place in this conversation. And one of the things that I wish we could get in the written Word of God are the inflections and the pauses. I think there's a long pause between verse 18 and 19 when Jesus said this, because he's wanting this guy to think and arrive at his own conclusion. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. Long period of silence. The guy's thinking. So you either retract that statement and rephrase it with other terminology or you let your statement stand. He let his statement stand. So here we go. Only God is good. This is what he said by letting it stand. Jesus is good. Now here's where we get into logical syllogism. You come over here and you put this little, this little three-symbol delta sign, which means therefore. You arrive at a conclusion based on these two propositions, okay? And here's the way you do it. You begin to X some things out. Well, you've got a commonality. You've got good here, and you've got Jesus and God. And since both of those are up there, only God is good. Jesus is good. Therefore, Jesus is what? You think the Lord wasn't a sharp cookie? He talked to that guy right where he was. Now look here. He didn't talk to fishermen that way. He wouldn't have talked to this old farm boy that way. But he talked to this rich, educated lawyer type in his own language. And the conclusion that he plainly laid out there for that guy based on the statements that he himself made is that Jesus is God. That's a conclusion to which you must come if you're going to be saved. There's no way to be saved with you thinking that Jesus is just a good man or a prophet or a teacher. Every other religious philosophy in the world undercuts this right here. Nobody except Christianity will say that Jesus Christ is God. Fully deity. Equal with God the Father and God the Son. Islam won't say it. Mormons downplay it. Jehovah's Witness nullify it. Hindus water it down and it put him in with about 10 million other gods. Jesus is God. 
Now look at this. This is why Jesus is wanting them to arrive at some conclusions. He's wanting them to arrive at the conclusion, number one, that Jesus is God, because without this, the gospel is nonsense. It's nonsense. Here's the problem with every other religion in the world. They offer no remedy for the sin problem for which, in which you were born. You didn't have to do anything to be a sinner. You sinned because you were born a sinner. You following me? And if Jesus isn't God, then there's nobody who can atone for my sin. There's nobody who can pay for my sin. There's nobody who can wash away my sin. There is no fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, which means I can never do by good works something that good works won't do, and that is wash my sin away. Because I've done it. I can't undo it. The only thing sufficient to be gospel truth is that Jesus Christ is God. He died on Calvary's cross to pay a debt that he did not owe because I owed a debt that I could not pay. And brothers and sisters, he shed his blood to make me white as snow. It don't work anyway else, Jerry. Jehovah's Witnesses, y'all are idiots. Thank you. Do you think by good works you can wash away your sin? No, sir. There's no way on God's green earth. The only way you can do it is by the blood of the Lamb. And I'm just not picking on JWs, every other religion out there that does not embrace the deity of Jesus Christ, you're bound for hell. I don't say that with pleasure. I say it trying to get you to repent and understand that God took on the form of a man and came and lived a perfect life and died on Calvary's cross, was buried and resurrected, rose again, ascended back to the right hand of the Father in order that you and I could be clean and know Him. It's the only way. You can't do enough good works. You can't do enough penance. You can't hop through broken glass from here to Peru, Jim, and ever be clean of your sin. Conclusion number one, Jesus is God. Without this, the gospel is nonsense. Conclusion number two, man is sinful. Look what Jesus did. Let's pick back up now. Remember, there was a long pause. Jesus wanting this guy to think. Can you imagine the audacity of the Lord wanting somebody to think? <laughs> Have you ever noticed that about, about believers? I, I, I think there's something about our church buildings that when you walk in, people's mind just turns off. Listen, I don't want folks who just accept carte blanche everything that's said. Think it through. If it's truth, it's truth. And it'll stand. Think, think, think. You've been given the mind of Christ. Use it. Think, think, think. Come to some conclusions. Look what Jesus did. Next, here's what he did next. Well, all right, that first conclusion I was wanting you to draw went boop right over your head. I, I know the feeling. Jesus laid it all out there for him. That guy's sitting there staring at him like a calf looking at a new gate. His eyes are glossed over. Yeah, I ain't never seen that before. Conclusion number two. Well, you missed that one. Let me lay this other one out there a little more plainly for you. You might get it. 
Conclusion number two I want you to come to is that man is sinful. And this is what he said. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Conclusion. Dear God, I've broken every one of those. So what's this guy say? He says, wait a minute. Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. But, but you know, he does give a concession. He says, I've kept all of those from my youth up. Did you pick it up now when I emphasized it? Here's what he was saying. You know what? When I was a youth, I, I, I sowed some wild oats. <laughs> I did some crazy things. But look, when I got serious about these commandments, buddy, I got serious. Don't matter. You already broke them. You know? It's like the old guy was asking somebody. He says, well, who, who had the same question? Have you ever killed anybody? Well, no, I've never killed anybody. Well, good. You never killed anybody. You ever stolen anything? Well, no, I've, I'm not a thief. I've never stolen anything. All right? Good. Well, have you ever, you ever told a lie? Well, you know what? I have told a lie. Now, wait a minute. You telling me that you're a liar and you want me to believe you that hadn't ever killed anybody? <laughs> you see what I'm saying? This sin is all an intertangled mess. And there's not one that's less than the other. It's all kind of connected. And Jesus is wanting this guy to say, you know what? I'm sinful. I am sinful. Man is sinful. But look, he even missed that as well. It's amazing to me. Look, here's the second conclusion. Man is sinful. Without this, the gospel is not essential. Stop and think about it. If Jesus is not God, the gospel is nonsense. If man is not sinful, then the gospel is non-essential. And do you see that's where we're going today as a society? There's no such thing as sin anymore. Folk just make mistakes. So since it's just a mistake, then there's no need for something radical to take place in order to save me from it. Here's the thing. The higher your view of sin then the more radical action it takes on God's part to rescue you from it. Are you with me? Sin is so bad. It's so deplorable. It so alienates us from God until God couldn't fix this by just making us a cake and glossing everything over. It took radical action on the part of God to deal with our sin problem, nothing less than sending His only begotten Son to die on a cruel cross on Calvary's hill in our place. Friend, listen, when you think you're not sinful, then it requires nothing to rescue you. Therefore, the gospel is not essential. You know why this place is not loaded with people from Bonifay today? Watch me. Because they don't think they're that bad. They really don't think they need the gospel. The gospel is for sinners. I'm all right. I don't need the church. If folk understood the severity of their sin, they'd do like this man did, and they'd run. But I guarantee you, everybody sitting at home this morning has got a list of reasons justifying why they don't need to be in church today. Jesus is God. Man is sinful. Third conclusion. His presence is the goal of redemptive history. Look what Jesus told him. Jesus said, go and sell what you have 
give it to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, you come and follow me. Now, watch me here, because a lot of folk have tried to universalize or generalize this truth and say, for us to be saved, we've got to give away everything we've got. It's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is speaking to this man where he is. He spoke to him in his language as a lawyer. Now he's speaking to him personally to what is preventing him from coming to faith. And you know what it was? It was money. So he said, this money is what's keeping you from embracing the gospel that I am proclaiming to you, which says that I am God, you're sinful, and unless we get together, something bad's going to happen to you. Basically was what Jesus told him. And he said, go get rid of all you have. Why? Because that was the hindrance that was keeping him from coming to Jesus. You know, for you it may be something else. For you it may be sports. It may be a hobby. It could be anything. But I promise you, you have, you have something that's keeping you from fully following the Son of God. And you don't want to give it up. And this guy didn't want to give it up. But for Jesus, the gospel was not about going to heaven when you die. It's about living in my presence starting right now. Man, I wish I could just hit play and let y'all hear John Wilson's Sunday school lesson that he taught about the presence of God this morning. My goodness. You see, here is the goal of redemptive history. The gospel highlights the gracious acts of God the Father in sending God the Son to atone for our sin so that you and I can receive God the Spirit and live in His presence forever. Starting from the moment our sin is removed, God floods our life. Why did Jesus die on Calvary's cross? To clean you up, to make you a fit receptacle for the Holy Spirit of God's presence in your life. That's why you can't have a relationship with God as long as we're still sinners and the blood of Jesus has never been applied to us. That's the goal of redemptive history. Listen to the charisma of the apostles. Here's what Peter said when he stood that day on Pentecost and he said, Repent, believe the gospel, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus so you can go to heaven when you die? No, so you can receive the Spirit of God. You see what happens when we've been cleaned and God sends the Spirit to invade our life. Now the alienation which happened in the Garden of Eden and you and I inherited through the generations of our parents and we were born sinners, that alienation is overcome and all of a sudden what we lost in the Garden, we get back in Jesus Christ. Living in the presence of God. And that's the goal. Hear me, church. That's the goal of redemptive history. That's the goal of the gospel. The goal is not just getting you to heaven. Heaven is not the goal of the gospel. A person is the goal of the gospel, and that person is God himself and us living back in his presence. David Platt once said, for the true believer, he would willingly go to hell if he thought Christ was there. Because salvation is not about streets of gold, crystal seas, rainbows around thrones, being reunited with Mama. It's not. It's about being wherever He is and His intensified presence. Woo. 
Well, without that, without Jesus as God, the gospel is nonsense. Without man being sinful, the gospel is non-essential. And without his presence, the gospel is non-biblical. It's non-biblical. All we are are a group of people trying to do the best we can and limp through life. Yeah, that's the gospel message, isn't it? Just do the best you can do and limp through life. How about in your presence is fullness of joy? And at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. I got to hurry. I'm down to my last three minutes. Here we go. What would Jesus say to a man from Bonifay? Well, he gave a shocking response. He wanted this man to come to his own conclusions. And even though Jesus tried to lead him, you ever notice that? You can lead somebody to Christ, but you can't save them. You can lead somebody to their own conclusions, but you can't make them embrace them. I remember years ago, Jay Leno was one of my favorites. He would get these, these old statements and take them to a, a preschool uh, kindergarten class and say, y'all fill in the blanks. And you know, the one, you can lead a horse to water, but he asked the preschooler that. Finish his statement. You can lead a horse to water. And the preschooler said, you can't make him get in a bathing suit. <laughs> you can lead somebody to Christ, <laughs> but you can't make them be a Christian. Only God can do that. But now check this out. He led him to his own conclusions, and then the man left making a conscious choice. Here it is. Here was the invitation. Here was the moment of decision. And that dude made a conscious choice. Look, 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 at, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, but at these words he was saddened. And he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. That word saddened, it means for your face to fall. It was used in a time of bereavement. It was used in a time of great tragedy. Where the emotions that folk had in their heart showed up on their face. You ever been there where you just couldn't hide it? Folks say you got to hide your emotions, but this guy couldn't. He was greatly saddened. You know why he was saddened? And I've had folks tell me this before. I've had folks say, Pastor, I leave church feeling worse than I did when I came. And my response is this, then you made a conscious decision to reject the grace of God and embrace Christ Jesus. That's why this guy walked away sad, because he made a conscious choice to take his riches and leave Christ. Jesus said, you come and follow me. Jesus was walking down a road toward the cross, a road of self-sacrifice. And this guy, all he could think of was his riches. Look here, I'm not taking one step down that road of giving up anything I've got, Jesus. He made a conscious choice. This is going to be sad, but I'm going to stick with door number two right here rather than take yours. And that guy made a conscious decision to turn his back on Jesus Christ. There is an interesting line of thought among some of the church historians of yesteryear that say that this guy that turned his back on Jesus was none other than Joseph of Arimathea. Remember him in the Gospels? He was the rich guy that ultimately came and got Jesus' body out of the tomb. Oh, I hope that's the case, because what that means is if it was Joseph of 
to tell you, he eventually came to repentance because he couldn't get away from the gospel bomb that Jesus dropped on him that day. Oh, he didn't repent that day, but maybe he did. That's best case scenario. Worst case scenario, we don't know who this guy was, and he stuck with his stuff at the expense of condemning his soul to an eternal hell because he made a conscious choice to walk away from Jesus. You know, here at Grace, we make it our practice not to count nickels and noses and decisions and all of that type of stuff. Somebody asked me not long ago, said, Preacher, did y'all have any decisions yesterday? I said, yeah, we did have decisions. How many did you have? I said, have about 120. You had 120 decisions on Sunday? I said, yeah, we did. There was 120 folk there, and every one of them decided not to listen. <laughs> they made a conscious choice to say, I'll do it next Sunday. I don't need that. I'm not sinful. I'm going to stick with my stuff rather than what Jesus proclaims. Hey, don't make a conscious, bad decision. Eternity is too long to be wrong. This life is too hard to live it without the presence of God. In Jesus' name, no matter what he says do, you do it and you won't regret it. Stand with me, please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Would you help us, God, to adhere to the gospel which he proclaims rather than tweaking for ourselves? Would you help us, God, take you at your word rather than trying to justify our own position? God, I pray that you'll help us see your gospel as opposed to the one that we are familiar with and that we choose to embrace, that just might not be powerful enough to change us, let alone get us to heaven. God, I pray for those who are here today that are right where this young guy was and they're on the precipice and they've got a decision to make. I pray today, God, you would draw them to yourself that they would say yes to Jesus no matter what the cost. They would be born again, be filled with the Spirit of God, be transformed for your glory. I pray for those who you're leading to follow you down the road of church membership at Grace. I pray God today would be the day that they make that choice pray for those whom you're speaking to, God, about personal issues that they are facing, that you are walking through with them. And I pray, God, today they would say yes. Whatever it is that you've said, God, may we be obedient. I pray, God, there's not going to be one hungry person leave today here unsatisfied. I pray there's not going to be one person leave here like this guy did, grieving and sad because they've made the wrong decision. Could today be the day say yes and surrender to you. I ask Colin Dollar if he would come stand up here on this side and Dr. John's going to stand on one side. And there's a decision you need to make today. If you'd like to pray about with these men or if you'd like to let them know that